You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. prophecy in Matthew 24 verses 15 to 28. Good evening my dear brethren and sisters and young people. Well our Lord Jesus Christ warned did he not brethren and sisters that the times leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem were going to be dramatic and turbulent and the those few historical records that are available indeed testified that was the case. In our last class we endeavoured to show brothers and sisters that the times were dramatic indeed and they were times of great, great distress and anxiety in the world and especially in the Middle East and the, the people of Israel and Jerusalem in particular. They were very terrible times. And I think, brothers and sisters, it's true to say that we would all be aware that we're entering into a period now which could well be the darkest period that we will see before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And whilst we say, brothers and sisters, that there is in this prophecy a division line between those words which apply to AD 70 and those words which are, of course, applicable to our own own age, we do believe, brothers and sisters, in the main, uh, that what we're going to see happen before the coming of Christ, that we saw that, a little prefiguring of that, in the events that led up to AD 70. And they they were very great and terrible times indeed. And who knows, brothers and sisters, just how long we're going to be left in this world until those times, of course, how long those times will continue and how long we will be here. We don't know that. We, we sometimes, you know, glibly think, well, Christ is coming and, and we're all going to be taken out of it. Well, that's true. But we don't know exactly when we're going to be taken out of it. We just don't know how much we're going to see of those troublous times. And uh, just as an indication, brothers and sisters, just one indication of the troublous times that are ahead, we mentioned last time how that, you know, the, the uh, devaluation of the economy in Russia and the fall of the ruble had such a, a tremendous impact upon world uh, economics and financial markets. And that was a currency, brothers and sisters, that really has got no value in itself. Whatever would happen if one of the major currencies the dollar, the yen or the German mark. Well, what would happen if they collapsed? Goodness only knows. But this we know, that we're told that Russia has $13 billion, that's equivalent to $13 billion American dollars in reserve and they're spending $1 billion a day. Now you just try and think of that. And that was a few days ago that was said. And when Boris Yeltsin was asked that, at a press conference in, in, in Moscow, they put this to him that that was his reserves. What are they going to do when it runs out? He just grunted. He never gave a verbal aim. Mm, like a bear. Mm, mm. I don't know, in other words. Now, you, you just imagine, brothers and sisters, a country of the size and the magnitude of, the, of, the, of, the, of Soviet Russia. You just imagine what's going to happen when there just isn't any money at all. Now, that's just one 
very dramatic illustration of what we could be faced with in the next few days, let alone weeks. And you've got, of course, markets all around the world are shaking at this, uh, at this time and are very, very uncertain indeed. And that could have a, a deleterious effect upon every Australian. Make no mistake about that. We're fooling ourselves and we think it's all going to get solved because I don't really think this time it will. I think it's too big. The wave is too big. And I think, brothers and sisters, who knows what's going to be the implications of all of that. Sufficient to say that that in itself, along with many other things, many other things, brothers and sisters, is building up to a crisis which is going to cause us, as well as the world, grave anxiety. And brethren and sisters are going to have to draw upon the reserves of their faith. They really are. Now we got up to verse 13 where we read there that he that endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And we want to continue tonight, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to be in no hurry tonight. I was in a bit of a hurry last time. I think I got a bit worked up about, I really did get worked up about those issues because I really felt that they were important. But we don't want, to be, don't want to be in any great hurry tonight because this is a wonderful prophecy and a very important prophecy. You think, brothers and sisters, that this would not be an exaggerated claim to say this, that until the apocalypse was given, until the apocalypse was given, this would have to be the greatest prophecy ever uttered, ever written up in the Bible. Have to be. And we know the apocalypse eclipses that because the Lord Jesus sent his messenger under John on the Isle of Patmos and filled in a lot of the details. But all the prophets that led up to this were not as great as this prophecy. So it behoves us to have a good look at this and to see what is behind the words of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is drawing upon a lot of Old Testament prophecies and things which are written therein and it will be our great benefit to have a look at that. Now he said that one of the signs that would come in verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. Now, we often say, brothers and sisters, that in order to appreciate the meaning of the scripture, we need to put ourselves in the situation as it then was and to try and see what the import of those words were to those disciples. Now, you, now you, it's, I'm going to show you a reference in a minute which is quite staggering in this regard. But think of this. This gospel of the kingdom. What gospel of the kingdom? Wilt thou restore again the kingdom to Israel was the question later on and they were right about that because it will be the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. But, said Jesus, this gospel shall be preached to all the world. Now that word world is one of those Greek words which there's been several Greek words which have been universally translated world in the, Old, in the New Testament. But there's different Greek words for that. And this one is that word which denotes the Roman habitable. That is the people who lived in the Roman Empire. Proof of that? Well, it's used in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 when it speaks about the taxation which was called for uh, when the Lord Jesus was born. It says that all the world should be taxed. 
And of course we know that the Caesars issued a decree that the taxation should affect every citizen of the Roman habitable. And that's what that word became peculiarly used for in the New Testament. It speaks of the habitable earth. So everybody in the Roman Empire is going to hear, hear the, go the, the, the gospel of this gospel of the kingdom. Now that would have been, brothers and sisters, electrifying and astonishing to those disciples. Make no mistake about that. They already had indications of that in the Lord's teaching. They had seen certain things which should have shown them that God's purpose was going to go wider than the Jews. But there was an inbuilt feeling within the nation that God's purpose was peculiarly with them. That really, that you know, it all belonged to them. That God's purpose didn't go any wider than that. And while some of them may not have said that in as many words, it was, as it were, sort of a subconscious feeling, and with some, of course, a straight-out belief that the Jews alone would hear that kingdom, hear the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus said, "Everyone." in the Roman world will hear this. And you, you just have to try and absorb what that meant to those disciples. You've just got to try and think that through. That would, would seem to be, it would be almost incomprehensible, brothers and sisters, that that could happen. But it did happen. Now in Colossians chapter 1, for example, here's the proof of how it happened. I mean, we read that and we say, oh yeah, the gospel's going to be preached in all the Roman world. And we think no more of it than it's a statement of fact. But, but it's an astonishing thing to them. But Paul said when he wrote to the Colossians, who of course were Gentiles living in Asia Minor, and in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Colossians, he said, or verse 5, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. So to come into all the world. And verse 23, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which we have preached to every creature under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, to whom was Paul made a minister? To the Gentiles. And every creature under heaven, brothers and sisters, had opportunity to hear that gospel. I don't think Paul means that every creature heard it. They certainly didn't heed it if they did. But I don't believe he means they all heard it. But they all had opportunity. He, he was stationed all over the world. He was on the Italian Peninsula, he was in Asia Minor, he was up there in Syria, he, they preached in Jerusalem, they were down in Alexandria. Everybody had opportunity to hear that, just as Jesus said they would, and no Jew could ever have conceived that that would have happened. But it did. And it went into all the world. And, said Jesus... It would be a witness unto all nations. Nations. Now that Greek word is ethnos. We get our word, word of course, from that, don't we? We, we, we talk about these, these things, the ethnos, which means a race. A race. And that's the word which is mainly rendered, most times is rendered in the scriptures as Gentiles. It'll be a witness under the Gentiles. 
But verse 9 said, Matthew 24, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all ethnos, of all nations for my name's sake. So the apostles were going to be hated of all nations. But you see, what Jesus is saying is that despite that the fact that it would happen, yet nonetheless God would give them a witness. And you know, brothers and sisters, there's something very important about that. Because I believe that what God is doing here mainly is being positive. That is, giving the Gentiles an opportunity to come into the truth, to witness to the truth. But though they would be hated of all nations, those who would not accept the truth would have a witness nonetheless that the thing which they hated was in the Bible. And there would be a witness against those who hated the apostle and a witness for those who accepted the truth. And that witness would come among all nations. And so that was the thing which the Lord Jesus Christ said it would happen and they would scarcely believe it. Now you just turn the page to the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into, not a mountain, brothers and sisters, but into the mountain. I want you to note that. That's extremely important. Into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And what happened there? Well, in verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach all nations. Look at the margin. The margin says, Or make disciples. Or make Christians of all nations. The idea of the Greek is to make disciples of all nations. Now you think about it. We know that Jesus is in Galilee. We know he's in the vicinity of the Lake of Galilee and somewhere near Capernaum. And we know that that is where he was, brothers and sisters, when he, when he taught the disciples on the Mount, what we sometimes call the Sermon on the Mount. We don't like the word sermon, uh, but where he gave his discourse on the Mount. And when did we read in Matthew, keep your hand here and come back to Matthew 5, just see what it says. You just think, this is taking this another dimension that they probably couldn't believe that this could be taken to this dimension. Not only preaching to the nations, but making disciples of them. Now you look what it says in Matthew chapter 5. And again I'll read from the Greek here. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. There is a definite article again. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now it says, then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them and he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And you see what he was saying? He would have brought them to that same mountain and if it wasn't the same mountain, brothers and sisters, there's no question of this, that the geography of it, it had to be right next to it and I believe it was the same one because the definite article is there, he would have got him up on top of the mountain and almost said to him, remember what happened here? Now I want you to go away and make disciples of nations, of Gentiles. Now you know, brothers and sisters, as well as I know, 
that it's one thing to be called upon to preach the truth and it's another thing to be called upon to make a, a person a disciple. I can give a lecture. It doesn't take a great deal of effort. We ought to know the fundamentals well enough to speak to them. I can put a leaflet in a letterbox. I can put money in the collection bag on Sunday morning. I can do a whole lot of things to assist the work of gospel proclamation. I have a towering admiration for the few brethren at Enfield who have the ability to make disciples and I'm not one of them. I find that extremely difficult. I suppose one of the reasons is that we've got other things to do but there are other reasons. But you watch certain brethren and sisters who will attach themselves to an interested friend and take them home to their house, teach them the truth, see them through their, their tuition period to the point of baptism and then continue friendship with that couple to initiate them into the ways of the ecclesia, to show them how things ought to be done in Christ and to stand alongside of them and assist them in difficulties which their new spiritual culture they're not used to, you note what they do. I stand in awe of that. Now that's more than preaching the truth, that's making disciples of people. Now you think about this fact, that these apostles are listening to this, they know the difference in the dimension, the difference between preaching and making a disciple, but Jesus said, I want you to do that to Gentiles, whom those disciples would have believed were unteachable. Witness later on in Acts chapter 10 when Peter had have all that preparation to go to Cornelius and he was an educated man. Now that was the, the aversion that those people would have had for Gentiles. Now Jesus is saying this gospel of the kingdom, of the kingdom which is going to be restored to Israel is going to be preached to all nations and for a witness to them before the end comes. Paul said it happened and here Jesus said on the mountain where his disciples came to him, make disciples of all nations. Now you look what it says in verse 20 of Matthew 28. Let's read verse 19 for context again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, which has been manifest in the Son by the power of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you right there on the mountain. See the point? And you know, brothers and sisters, there's a very powerful exhortation in that, isn't it? Now imagine you'd have been sitting there and, and alright, well, let's, let's see this in the context of those 11 disciples and then let's just, in our own way, apply that to ourselves. So Jesus is saying, you remember this place? You know what happened here? Now I want you to go away and change the lives of people that you have nothing to do with and whom you, with whom you think are unfit to live. I want you to change their lives. And I'm paraphrasing now what I believe for the import of what he was saying. 
And if you think that is difficult, just remember, I did it for you here on the mountain. You go and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And when we think, brothers and sisters, at times that oh, we'll never, can't persevere with this person or that person because, you know, they come from all sort of a, a decadent way of life and that perhaps we may consider them uneducated. Well, I just think to myself, what did I know before I, when I come into the truth? I knew absolutely nothing. What was the level of my education, brothers and sisters, was nil. I left school at 14 and haven't got a single certificate for any, any of, the, of what I was ever taught. And yet I know the truth. God taught that to me through my brother-in-law and others who helped me and who patiently endured that and kept me going. Why can't I do that? For others. Why should I say that that person can never understand the truth or I can't get through to this person? Jesus said that on the mountain. You go and make disciples because I made disciples of you here. Now look at that. So as I say, it's one thing to take Matthew 24 and say, well, this gospel of the, of the kingdom shall be preached among all nations, but now here in chapter 28, it's got to go beyond preaching. And it isn't good enough, brothers and sisters, for us to give a lecture and say, well, the people of this area had a chance to hear the truth, they, they couldn't care less. It's not good enough. Because we've got to say, well, what can we do more? And if there's some interest, we've got to pursue that to the end with a view to make them disciples as God through his Son has made us disciples. I think that's powerful. And I think if you're able to mentally envisage the attitude of those disciples, I think you'd understand just what an impact those words would have had upon them. And then he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem back in Matthew 24 and verse 15. When he quotes from the book of Daniel, he's going to quote to them Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. But in verse 15 of Matthew 24, and he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him understand. And Jesus is saying, I hope you understand me. Well, let's have a look at this abomination of desolation. What's that all about? Well, the Greek word for abomination, brethren and sisters, is the word which means to be detestable. Something you detest. It comes from a root word which means really to stink. Uh, you know, it's a very strong word. It's that word uh, used in Revelation 17 of the great whore system of Babylon. The abominations of the earth, that which stinks in the nostrils of God. He, he considers it to be putrefied. It's, it's a very strong word, that which God detests. It's the same word as used in, in Luke 16 of the righteousness, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who justified themselves in the sight of men but, said Jesus, was abomination to God. That's the same word. So it's a word which means detestable. And of course the word desolation means what it says, destruction. So there's a, there's a desolating destruction, a despicable detestable destruction that Rome is going to perform. 
Now that's taken from Daniel chapter 9 and, and let's have a look what it says and, and I'd like you to sort of keep a marker or something in, in Daniel if you can around about 8 and 9 because we'll be coming back here several times as we pursue this section of the, of the Olivet Prophecy. But in Daniel 9 and verse 27 this is where he's coming from. You'll find it again in chapter 11 in another context but this is what Jesus is quoting. In Daniel 9 and verse 27 he says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate. So there it is, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Even until the consummation and that determined which shall be poured upon the desolate, or the desolator, as it's better read. So what's it all about? The overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Now the RV, or the RSV, renders that sentence this way. Upon the wing of abomination comes one who shall make desolate. So upon the wings... (laughs) Someone was going to fly into Jerusalem and who was going to create a desolation which in God's view was despicable and he detested it. Now that's what he's talking about. And we know who flew in on eagle's wings and encompassed the city of Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus is talking about the Roman armies. We know that for absolute certain. How do we know? Well, we know it from certain from Daniel's prophecy, which we'll prove in a minute, but we don't even need Daniel's prophecy because Luke translates that and he said, when you shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, and that could only mean the Roman armies. So the abomination of desolation are the Roman armies. Now, did Jesus say the words of Luke or the works of, say, Matthew or Mark? He said the words of Matthew or Mark because he He said this, let him that readeth understand. In other words, he did not give an explanation. Luke interpreted his phrase, but he never said what Luke said. That's an interpretation of it. So the proof of that is that he said, I hope you understand. Now, if he'd explained to them, he wouldn't have said that. So he left them to work out what that was. Just the same, brothers and sisters, as he leaves it to us to work out the signs of the times. And when we do that, we find that in the Brotherhood we have several opinions about what this or that means of important prophecies. And we're not here to beat a drum or or to necessarily criticise anyone else, but we are going to say this, brothers and sisters, that prophecy is more important than what many people think. Because it's not in our statement of faith, we think, well, it's fair game that we should have a difference of opinion on prophecy. Well, it isn't. It's too important for that because it creates too much confusion. It destroys people's faith and when things don't come to pass, as some people predict they will, it brings great despair upon the the people who depend upon the exposition of the word. We need to have, brothers and sisters, that broad sweep of understanding that was set forth by our pioneers of the continuous interpretation of prophecy. And we don't believe that just because the pioneers said it. 
we're not that way that we, we say, well, tradition says we've got to believe it because the pioneers said it. That's not the point. The pioneers said it because the Bible said it and because time has proven that though there may have been, brothers and sisters, some minor differences or, or things, they, modifications which Brother Thomas or Brother Roberts or others may have made had they had the hindsight that we've got. Overall, when we look at that plan and purpose which they set forth, we can't see a great flaw in it, can we? We anticipate that will happen. Now, why is that important? Brethren and sisters, there were four men listening to that prophecy. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Now, try and just picture this, of Jesus saying to his best friends, now look, when you see what Daniel's talking about, that abomination of desolation, I hope you understand what I mean. Then get out of the place. Brothers and sisters, what do you think would have happened if there had been four different opinions as to what the abomination of desolation was? Maybe one of them would have been right and that disciple would have fled Jerusalem. The other three would have stayed there. And they would not just simply have lost their life or gone into slavery, brothers and sisters. They would have lost their life in an agonising way. They would have gone through one of the worst sieges of all history and would have seen their wife and their children dragged off in chains and some of them thrown to lions. Because there would have been four different opinions as to what it was. That's how important Jesus said, I hope you understand. Now, what was this despicable desolation that the Romans were going to perpetrate in Jerusalem? We'll come back to Daniel chapter 8. Let's read what it was. Speaking of the work of the little horn of the goat, that is, of course, a symbol of the gradual growing to power of the Romans in the Middle East. We read in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 to 12. And out of one of them shall come forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great towards the south and towards the east and towards the pleasant land. It waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground, and it stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground and it practised and it prospered. Now there, brothers and sisters, is the abominable desolation perpetrated by the Romans. Here it is. Here's the list of them. Look what it did. Now the RSV getting hold of the meaning of that expression, renders it the desolating sacrilege. That's exactly the, the meaning. That captures it wonderfully. The desolating sacrilege. And this is what they did. They desecrated the pleasant land. It's a pleasant land in God's view. And they trod it underfoot of a Roman iron heel, brothers and sisters, when there were brutal soldiers of whom that land was unworthy, or rather they were unworthy to be in that land. That's the first thing they did. It says it cast down the host of heaven. 
and threw some of the stars and stamped upon them. And we know, brothers and sisters, from the words of Moses and from the words of Daniel himself, that that was a symbol of the Jewish people. And they committed a desolating sacrilege against God's people, despite their transgressions. Despite their transgressions. They were beloved for the Father's sake, and they did that. They crucified the Prince of the Host, and that can be none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did God think of that? And you know, brothers and sisters, Peter, in the Acts of the Apostles, when he denounced the Jewish people because of their wickedness, he said, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The word wicked in the Greek means lawless. He wasn't referring to Jewish hands. Jewish hands were wicked. But the term that Peter uses was referring to Roman hands because they, brothers and sisters, despite their Jewish antipathy to Romans, forgot that for the moment and because of the common hatred they had for the Lord Jesus Christ, used lawless hands, lawless hands to crucify the Son of God and that's what the Romans did. And those lawless hands took God's Son and nailed him to a stake. Isn't that a desolating sacrilege? They took away the daily sacrifice. How important was that, brothers and sisters? Let me tell you how important that was. When you go and do a study of the law of Moses, this is what you learn. You come, we won't turn this up, because it's a long chapter. But in Numbers 28, we have set out there, brothers and sisters, along with Numbers 15, all the details of what they were to offer for every important day and week of the Jewish year. It's all there in very great detail. The animals they would offer, whether they would be a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, whether they'd be a lamb, a bullock, a ram or a goat, the amount of oil they would use, the amount of meal they would use, it's all set out in that chapter, those two chapters. And all the way through, it says come to the Passover, you'll do this beside the daily offering. And then come to the Feast of Pentecost, you will do this beside the daily offering. You come to the Sabbath, you'll do this beside the daily offering. And then you come to the daily offering itself. And it says, you shall offer two lambs in the morning and two lambs in the evening beside the daily offering. So it didn't take the place of the daily offering though it was a repetition of it, a replica of it, it didn't stop the daily offering. And so the daily offering, brothers and sisters, went for 360 days of the Jewish year and nothing made any difference. Why? Because God was saying to them that irrespective of the changes of the certain days, irrespective of the multitude of sacrifices that were made, there was one that could never alter. And you, 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 you get a coloured pencil in Numbers 28 and you number the phrase beside the daily burnt offering. And you see how many times you do it. Beside the daily burnt offering. Beside the daily burnt offering. Beside the daily burnt offering. That never changes. Why? Because there was a, a lamb in the morning put upon the altar as a burnt offering, total dedication to God, smoked all day until the evening and then finally fell through the grate as ashes and they'd put another lamb in the evening and it would smoke all night till in the morning they would replace it again 
And so upon the altar of God, brothers and sisters, there was one lamb of the first year without spot and blemish, totally, absolutely, totally dedicated to God. And it was a wonderful prophecy that whatever else men might do, whatever changes there might be, whatever variations there may be in law, one thing will remain permanent. The perfect obedience to God of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for three days, the Romans silenced him. That, brothers and sisters, is a desolating sacrilege. They took away the daily, beside the daily burnt offering. Beside the daily burnt offering. Beside the daily burnt offering. And they took that away. For which the Romans were never going to be forgiven for that. That's why Rome suffered like it did and for many other reasons. But that, I believe, was one of the main reasons. Daniel says they destroyed the place of his sanctuary. The place of, that's what they did. All right, Jesus said it's your house. We know that, brothers and sisters. But it was the place that God had chosen to put his name there. And they destroyed that. That was a desolating sacrilege. And they cast down the truth to the ground. They cast down the truth to the ground. And that's a desolating sacrilege. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, when you see that get put in place, you better get out. What a dreadful thing was coming, brothers and sisters, when that happened. Now, while we're in Daniel chapter 8, just so as we'll have no doubt whatever who this was referring to and when it was referring to, what point of history, I want to just show you and pick up a couple of expressions in Daniel chapter 8 and then want to run them into the New Testament and show you the Lord Jesus Christ using them in exactly the right contextual history. I refer to verse 12 of Daniel 8. Note what it says. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice. In other words, when the Roman power took the Jewish host, it wasn't as if it was by his own prowess, but God had given it to him. Note that word. It says it again in verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give? both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. So it wasn't only the Jewish host that God gave him, God gave him the sanctuary. In other words, God allowed that to happen. It was God's will that it should be done, but Rome would answer for it. Rome would answer for it, but it was God's will. It wasn't because the Romans were clever or powerful. It was God's gift, God's gift to them. It was his will. And then in verse 24, and his power shall be mighty but not by his own power. Now, did you notice those two expressions, brothers and sisters? God gave it to him because it was not by his own power. Now, you come to John chapter 19 and just listen to this. Here's one of those marvellous applications of the Bible. Now, Jesus is before Pilate. Now, brothers and sisters, just remember... Here is the Roman representative of the little horn of the goat and this 
is the point of history that Daniel is talking about. Here it is, right now. Now you listen. Verse 10 of John 19. Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Now listen to the answer. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. How about that? He give him this, he give him this, but not by his own power. And Jesus is standing there looking at the very man that Daniel was talking about. This is not just an application of Daniel, this is it. Jesus is standing before the very man that represented that power at the very point of history that that decision was going to be made. And he used those words from Daniel. You could have no power at all except it were given you from above. That's exactly what Daniel had said. You know, you can, we know that there was abundant proof, of course, that Rome fulfilled that prophecy. But when you see little things like that, brothers and sisters, they're not little things. When you see things like that, isn't that a tremendous verification of how we understand that? That the Lord knew exactly the relationship of Pilate, he knew exactly the point of history and he knew what was going to happen from Daniel chapter 8. It's wonderful when you see that. Now back in Matthew 24, Matthew says... When you see this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, this is verse 15 again, he says, stand in the holy place. Now, now the Greek idea is not just stand, but standing. You see, he's not telling the disciples to stand in the holy place. He said, this desolating sacrilege, it was going to be standing in the holy place. You see, what Jesus is saying is that Daniel says to you, he's telling you disciples that you're going to see something all out of character with God's purpose. That that abomination, that despicable, detestable thing has got no right to be standing there. It's, it's all brothers and sisters out of character. Now we know that that holy place they had desecrated. We know that. But nonetheless, brothers and sisters, it was Deuteronomy chapter 12 before ever the children of Israel came into that land that had said, that God said, I will choose me out a place that I might put my name there. That's the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy in verse 5. Matter of fact, it says it three or four times in that chapter. I will choose me out a place. He didn't say at that point what it was, but he said, I will choose me out a place and I will put my name there. And he chose him to do that. It pleased God to do that, brothers and sisters. And Jeremiah said, didn't he, that the days will come. Let's read the quotation from Jeremiah 31 because it's in the context of the new covenant, brothers and sisters. Look what Jeremiah said about that place. It had such wonderful titles applied to it. When you see that despicable sacrilege, said Jesus, standing in a place it never ought to be. And in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah... And verse 23, Thus saith Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. Yahweh bless thee, O 
habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And Jeremiah, brothers and sisters, was talking at a time when the Jews had absolutely desecrated that holy place. But he says the day will come when those people will come back to that place and people will say of that place, when they'll see Israel and they'll say to Israel, Oh Yahweh bless you, the habitation of justice and the mountain of his holiness. And look who's there now. The despicable, desecrating Romans. Jesus said, when you see something all out of character, you get out of that place. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendous, you know, when you, when, you, when you see those issues. And Jesus would have looked with sadness, brothers and sisters, at that site that was before him over the other side of Kidron and, and saw that place, the, the, the holy mountain of Yahweh, the habitation of justice, the city of truth, everything that was decent and honourable and powerful, everything that related it to God. And look who's going to stand there. A power that's going to commit a desolating, an abominable sacrilege against that place. That's what Daniel was talking about. Then Jesus said, let him that readeth understand. We could not underline, brothers and sisters, more underline the importance of that exhortation. Not just simply reading the Bible, just for the sake of reading. But you know, there are going to come critical times in our life and there have been critical times in our life, haven't there? And we need to read accurately. We need to know, as Brother Thomas put it, we need to know the times to which we stand related. Isn't that a wonderful expression of Brother Thomas in Eureka? That God had written these things that people might know the times to which they stand related. We, we should know that. And I say, we're not here to push a barrow and to say, well, you know, everybody else's opinion is not worth anything. It's not that at all, brothers. It's important that this ecclesia, and I think all ecclesia, should have a common platform on this matter. So we have a common view of things. Do you remember, brothers and sisters, remember the time not so long ago when, when communism broke up? Remember that? And remember we had to say on the class night just after that, had to issue a warning, don't don't be destabilised by that. Don't go away and say, oh, it's not Russia. Russia's not the goat. Russia is the goat. We're on the eve, brothers and sisters, of seeing the return of communism. Boris Yeltsin's nominee is not acceptable. Three times, not acceptable. Why? Because the communists won't have him. And the people now are bartering for food. They barter among themselves. They work for each other. In Russia, you know that? The carpenter goes and fix up the mechanic's house. The mechanic goes and fix up the carpenter's car because they can't get any, nobody pays anybody. So they work for each other. They barter for food and they're all same. As bad as communism was, it was better than this. So you see, we need to be stabilised on these things. The Gog is a Russian and he will come down to the Middle East. It will be the merchant of Tarshish, England, who will, who will stand in his way, in a meek way. And these are things, and it's Israel's back in that land. These, are the, these are, are the pillars of prophecy, brothers and sisters, and we need to know that. Let him that readeth understand. And you know, there's another reason why Jesus said that. Because that's exactly what God said to Daniel in that chapter. Now have a look at it. It was in that very chapter this was said. So Jesus is simply repeating 
the exhortation which God gave Daniel in this chapter. Chapter 9 of Daniel. In chapter 9 of Daniel, we, in verse 23, Gabriel says to Daniel in, in, in the speaking about the things he wanted to know in verse 22 and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth and I am come to show thee for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Now you've got it again in verse 25. Know therefore and understand so you see, Jesus is quoting this chapter. Now, brothers and sisters, if it was necessary for Daniel to know, it was necessary for them to know. They had to be accurate in those matters. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that we, we've got to know the day or the hour he comes because we don't know. And you know, it's an incredible thing. It's a remarkable thing that he didn't know himself the day or the hour and yet we've had brethren in the past who have come with the very day that Christ is going to return and you say, where did you get that from? And they say, we got that of Daniel. And we say, well, Jesus had Daniel and he didn't know. Wow. You know, that would make you rock back on your heels when he had Daniel. And he couldn't tell the day that. But I tell you what he did know. He knew the times to which he stood related. He knew that Pilate was up there at the right time. He knew the hour had come for his crucifixion. He didn't know the day or the hour when the kingdom was set up, but he knew the times he was related to then, brothers and sisters, and he used the very words of Daniel in that context, that in historical context, to the right man. And so like Daniel, he, he had come to understand what had been revealed. And not everything had been revealed, but what had been revealed, he'd come to understand it. And Daniel, he was told twice. So all Jesus was doing, brothers and sisters, is to, to, you know, to, to repeat the very exhortation which the man that made the prophecy was told by Gabriel. So they had, had a kindred spirit with Daniel. Understand what the prophet himself was called upon to understand. And when they understood, it says back in uh, Daniel uh, in uh, Matthew 24. It says, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. Well, brothers and sisters, note first of all this. Let them which be in Judea. So Judea was the holy place. Of course it was. That's where the Roman was going to come. So that's the land. That's the holy land. That's the first thing we know. Second thing, we had to flee to the mountains. Now they were in, Jerusalem is in mountains. We're going to go to another set of mountains. Well, you could go way up north to Lebanon. Or what was far quicker, you could go down over the hill of the Brow of Olivet and make your steep way down to Jericho, cross the plain, across the River Jordan and you'd be over in Gilead. And everybody in the Old Testament, you know, when people fled for refuge, fled to hide, they went to Gilead. David went there to hide from Absalom because Gilead, you see, is a land, it's a plateau really. It rises a thousand feet or more above the Jordan Valley and then it rolls up on the plateau of, of Moab, of the, of the Arabia. But because all the water that rains up there comes down over that plateau and, and rushes over the edge, it's cut all these watercourses. It's cut all these ridges so that the, the top of that plateau is, is rolling like ridges all the way up. And, and it's called in the Old Testament the watercourses of Reuben. 
because Reuben had his tribe over there and these border courses had made all these little ravines lead to the mountains and that's where the disciples went, didn't they? Look, we have a record of history, brothers and sisters, of what happened. They fled to the mountains and we know the historian Eusebius in in the 4th century. Who was Eusebius? Well, he was the Bishop of Alexandria. So we don't want his religious opinions. But he was also a very great historian. And he recorded, in the 4th century, he recorded the fact uh, that the disciples escaped to Pella. Pella, which would be up here, just above the river Jabbok. And there were opportunities to do that. One happened in AD 66, which I'm going to explain in a moment on 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 another transparency that in AD 66 the defeat and withdrawal of Cestus Gallus from Rome, from rather from Jerusalem itself, gave the disciples opportunity to get out. And again in AD 69, uh, when there was a very important event happened which uh, delayed the siege of Jerusalem when Vespasian was recalled to Rome to be made emperor, the siege of Jerusalem was delayed and they had two opportunities to listen to the words of Jesus and at that time the Roman armies had encircled Jerusalem. Now let's show you the history of what happened. The words of the Lord came to pass. It all started around about this year here. The beginning of the end rushed up, brothers and sisters. It all came with a rush. In AD 62, there was a fight between the Jews and and the Syrians in Caesarea. They hated each other. These are not Romans, they're Syrians. And that caused an eruption all over the empire when Jews and Syrians got to each other's throats. There was a great slaughter in Alexandria over that matter by the Jews and the Syrians down there. And all over the Roman Empire where there was a collection of Jews and Syrians together, that erupted all over the world. That racial conflict between them. That happened in AD 62. In AD 66, the Romans looted the city of Jerusalem were defeated by the Jews and a man called Florus who was then the the governor who of course was now in Pilate's position he was the governor of Judea he he was a a corrupt absolutely corrupt Roman official in the end the Romans had to do something about him they had to remove him because he he was so blatantly corrupt Uh, he he, uh, he allowed brothers and sisters in his uh, term of office he allowed all the Sicarii, the Jewish bandits, and all the unlawful people, he allowed them free reign. He did nothing to rein in all the banditry in, in the land and the Sicarii were let loose and he did so for 10%. 10% of their takings, if they gave to him, he turned a blind eye to it. The Jews wrote time and again, they made protest after protest to Rome and he did nothing about it until in the end they absolutely got stuck into them and they defeated the Romans in, in the city of Jerusalem, defeated them and threw them out. Which caused, point number three, when the same, same year they sent down from up in Syria up here, they sent this Cestus Gallus, another Roman governor up here, they sent him down to, 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 have, to wreak vengeance upon the Jewish people. What right have they got to defeat the Romans? So Cestus Gallus came down with, with the Roman legion and he tried to restore order in Jerusalem. didn't work. As a matter of fact, to the astonishment of the Roman world, he was roundly defeated in the narrow streets of Jerusalem. The Jews had become very adept 
uh, fighting from house to house uh, in, in the narrow uh, streets of Jerusalem and the Romans of course used to order and, and the way they were marshalled and, and the garrisons were worked didn't have the experience and they got into these narrow streets of Jerusalem the Jews were up on the roof and they pelted them with stones and took a terrible toll in the end brothers and sisters Cestus Gallus fled from Jerusalem and he fled over here to where Tyre, where, where rather Hyper is, to, not Hyper, what am I thinking of? Tel Aviv is today along really the pathway that Joshua chased the, uh, the, 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 the Canaanites when the sun and the moon stood still and he chased them across here and very few of the Roman troops escaped. Thousands of them were killed. And, and the Caesar was saying, what on earth's going on here? This rabble nation, this nation of, of, of just... Rebel, what on earth is happening? And that caused a ripple to go around the Roman world, which sure did. So much so that the Romans, the Senate in Rome, met over this matter, brothers and sisters. Now the end is building fast. Jesus said, when you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, here it comes. In AD 67, one year later, the Senate had sat before that. The news of this defeat of Cestus Gallus had gone around the Roman Empire and there was consternation everywhere. The Romans were beating nations a dozen times stronger than Israel and they could not understand how this could ever have happened in Jerusalem. So much so that they decided to send a Vespasian who was probably the most noted of all Roman generals and he had retired. He'd retired from service on a very big pension and he was living in some opulence somewhere and they recalled him, brothers and sisters, because of the Jews. It was a serious matter. And so Vespasian collected a whole lot of troops. They brought troops from Gaul. They brought them from Brittany. They brought them from Asia Minor. They brought them from Egypt. And there'd never been such a force in that time marshalled against the Jews. And yet other nations, they were fighting with less troops than that. And I've got a a, a sort of a, a graph home which this historian points out the amount of troops that the Romans used against the, the Jews was incredible considering the, uh, you might say the, the difference in the, in the power structure of the Jews against other nations but it took 70,000 Roman troops to bring that under control so Vespasian came and he landed here at Antioch in AD 67 now the first thing he did was to attack this little place here Jodapata, or Jodapath as some call it. And that fell, and that's where Josephus lived. And Josephus fought tenaciously to hold that place, a siege of about two months before that little city fell, a little city in Galilee, a little, not very big at all, on the, on the northern edge of, of the Jezreel Valley. And, and there he fought tenaciously until the Romans finally took that. And then Josephus, of course, to save his own skin, he turned traitor and became an advocate for the Romans. But that happened in AD 67. Now, brothers and sisters, what happened after that was this. We haven't got on this map, but what Vespasian did was to, to go around in a campaign until he cleaned up all Galilee. He came down in a campaign, he cleaned up all Samaria. He went across the other side of the, of the Jordan River over here and cleaned up all Perea on the other side of Jordan. And all the time he's doing this, all the time he's doing this, they're having councils, so the historian tells us, they were holding the councils of war among his generals and all these generals were chafing at the bit and saying to Vespasian, why do we delay in going to Jerusalem? And Vespasian said, why should we go to Jerusalem? Why not let the Jews do it themselves? Because what was happening, brothers and sisters, was this. 
that as these, as these, these uh, sections of the land were, were conquered by the Romans and brought under control, so the Jews were fleeing into Jerusalem. And they fled into Jerusalem, the common people, they fled into Jerusalem, the zealots, the political hotheads, they fled into Jerusalem, the Sakari, and they commenced behind those walls, brothers and sisters, to tear each other to shreds. And Vespasian could see that and he said, why bother? Let's just go round in circles. Let's just bide our time. They're doing a marvellous job. And in the end, you wouldn't believe this, but in the end, they, the zealots occupied the temple itself and turned the holy place of God into a fortress. Would you, would you believe it? The religious Jews there, the Pharisaical element, who had some dignity, wouldn't do that. But the zealots did. And they got in there and they made that a fortress and the Sakari were outside just murdering people for food and for money. People were actually swallowing gold to carry it in their stomachs to, to hope one day they might escape. And they, the Romans watched this happen. And so Vespasian says, don't worry about it. And in the end, brothers and sisters, the Zealots, or rather was it the Zakari, one of the, of the groups, actually opened the gate and let the Edomites in there. Brought up the Edomians, who were Edomites, and invited them into the city to assist them against their fellow Jews. Now that's the state to which the Ecclesia was reduced. The ecclesia was reduced, brothers and sisters, of recruiting any means possible to their faction against the other faction. That's to what the ecclesia of God was reduced. And Vespasian watched that happen. AD 70 drew on, didn't it? But you see, it didn't happen straight away because in AD 69 there was the fall of the of Nero. And what happened, brothers and sisters, there were four Roman emperors which fell in quick succession and the whole of Rome was shaken to its foundations, not only by this, but now by internal difficulties. And so the government was in shreds. And it was Vespasian's own troops in Caesarea here, his own troops, brothers and sisters, who actually proclaimed him emperor in the land without any consultation with the Senate. And it was the usual means of doing it. Politics in those days was decided by uh, the end of a spear or an arrow or a sword. And it was generally the army who, who was behind the emperor that came to the throne. It was no different here. And the troops of Vespasian proclaimed him to be emperor in Caesarea and they accepted that in Rome and he went back in order to receive that high office and in the meantime he left Titus, his son here, to look after the, uh, what was going on and while he was away for that short period of time when he was over there, although he didn't come back of course, Titus went on with it, but for a short period of time the Romans inexplicably withdrew from the walls of Jerusalem. What an opportunity! What an opportunity! When you shall see that desecrating sacrilege, get out! Brothers and sisters, what an opportunity! What if it had been four opinions then? Well, the historian records the disciples fled to Pella. But those who didn't believe Jesus, who didn't understand Daniel, brothers and sisters, would have stayed there with their interpretations or lack of interpretation. And some of them, many of them, died a horrible death. And so came to an end the Jewish state according to the prophecies 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because that brings us, I suppose, to a climatic period there, brothers and sisters, we won't press any more tonight. There may be time if the Chairman permits for any questions, if I might be able to answer, or any comment any brother would like to make. But I believe, brothers and sisters, that the days in which we're living are but nothing more than a rerun of that history and we do not want, brothers and sisters, under any circumstances, anything to destroy our faith, our love of God and our love of each other. We've got to maintain that. We have to maintain that, brothers and sisters, because we're going to have people in desperate need as these days close about us. Some of us may feel self-sufficient spiritually. I don't, but some may feel self-sufficient spiritually. They may think they'll get by. Believe me, if, if my ears are hearing the right things, a lot of our brothers and sisters don't think they're going to get by on their own. And let it not be, brothers and sisters, that as this world collapses around about us, let it not be that we just contribute to our own downfall. It would be a sad, sad day should that ever happen. I feel that very strongly, you know. I don't say that lightly. I pray every night for our ecclesia that that may not happen because I know what the ecclesia means to me and my family and you ought to know what it means to you and your family. It doesn't mean to say we have to agree on everything each, everybody says. It doesn't mean to say we have to compromise our principles. We don't do that, brothers and sisters, but whatever we do, let us make absolutely certain that we strengthen what's here and that we get ready for a day of trouble. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.